Hello and welcome to Mint Dialogue episode number 80. This interview is recorded on October 23rd, 2013. is with Jeremy Goldman, a.k.a. Jerem Marketer, who has started his own agency, Firebrand Group, based in Manhattan, sharing a passion for branding and digital, and having both passed through L'Oreal's hallowed halls, we caught up with each other and discussed e-commerce and social media marketing. Jeremy has a lot of operational experience, sharing with us a whole lot of tips and tricks for improving e-commerce. Hope you'll enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minto Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minto Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue Show. Um, today, I'm in wonderful Manhattan, and I've got someone who I've met, well, at least I met for the first time today, but we have been exchanging for quite a long time, and we have a couple things in common. Two of the things are our work at L'Oreal and being uh, quite digitally oriented. So, Jeremy, tell us who you are, and as Mitch always says, what you up to. Yeah, well, um, my name is Jeremy Goldman, and I'm the founder and CEO of Firebrand Group, and I've been uh, working with digital e-commerce and social media for a better part of the last decade and a half. All right, so tell us a little bit about your background, where where you were uh, acting on e-commerce, social, and so on. Yeah, so really, I started uh, consulting uh, with uh, you know digital and e-commerce uh, back in the early aughts, as uh, nobody says, uh, and uh, then landed at uh, a few beauty brands, so Jurlique, uh particularly L'Oreal, which we bonded over a bit, um, and uh, in particular the Kiehl's uh, brand for L'Oreal, uh, and and then a few other ones, including Tem2, the uh, world's top airbrush makeup company, uh, and uh, I recently helped. Uh, Unilever launch a luxury division, which should be in stores uh, soon. The the fruits of those labors uh, before uh, jumping on to Firebrand. All right, so let's just uh, circle back to Kiehl's, a brand I love. When you were at Kiehl's, you were working in the DMI, so creating the brand, and you also had responsibility for e-commerce and social. Can you talk us through how what some of your learnings were about how to drive social e-commerce from the headquarters? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the key things to understand is so when you talk about social media and e-commerce, back then, and we're talking like maybe 2007, 2008, uh, people didn't quite understand yet that those two things are not one and the same, and they shouldn't necessarily even be the same person uh, managing the, uh, the two of them, because the true value of social media, as you know, is brand awareness and driving sales across channels. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was kind of like, well, you're going to focus on social media? Fine. Well, every Every single minute has to be driving value to e-commerce, and it's not really thinking about it in, in its totality. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I think people have gotten a lot more mature uh, mm-hmm. about. I was fighting that fight and trying to explain it back then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not necessarily completely successfully. Right. Uh, and and then the other big learning is to understand different things work uh, well in different markets. So the Kiehl's DMI group was responsible for uh, managing uh, 
basically all these functions and leading the strategy for, I believe, about 30 markets. And in, you have to understand different cultural norms. You have to understand there are different social platforms at work. In each one, e-commerce is mature in certain markets, and you might need to require a phone number or place it more prominently. Mm-hmm. So there are all these different considerations, and you really can't have a one-size-fits-all uh, strategy and not try to adopt each uh, adapt to each market. Mm-hmm. So a lot of companies, what they would do is they would, when digital first came along, they sort of did bucketed everything into it, whether it was the site, the social e-commerce, and so on. And uh, and now we're getting to a little bit more maturity. So if we just uh, focus in on e-commerce, for example, what what are the what are you? How do you go about working with some of your clients on? structuring their e-commerce strategy because you know you, you do want to synergize on costs lessons learned best practices at the same time you have to customize in the market so what how do you what's your best approach for that yeah, so I, I think the first thing to do when you're talking about e-commerce strategy for a client, so what we do is we have an approach where we break it down into two buckets, right? We think about off-site and on-site, uh, and, and then we try to look to see which one are we going to prioritize based off of what the client's needs are. And often case, we find a client who's very mature in one area and very immature in another. Uh, so uh, with, with one of ours uh, that I can talk about, so we've got uh, AI Friedman, which is a uh, leading art supplier retailer uh, in the New York City area, uh, and they actually have a uh, you know an e-commerce uh, site that had a lot going for it, um, and 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 it was carrying a lot of SKUs. But one thing that they were they were in some ways uh, previously afraid of pushing the site as much as they could because they had more SKUs available in store. Uh, so because of that, their inbound marketing. Uh, structure and their strategy wasn't as strong mm-hmm. as you would have liked. Uh, and what we did is we worked with them and said there's nothing to be ashamed about. We have an amazing selection online. Uh, so let's actually promote it a little bit further. Uh, we looked to see everybody who had ever sent any referral traffic. Uh, and then we optimized by creating relationships with those people who hadn't linked to us for a while, but uh, who, when they had previously, we had tremendous uh, e-commerce uh, results as a result. So so. So it, it, that, that's part of it, is breaking it down into silos and then looking to see which one needs more attention and more TLC, uh, and then figuring out how to optimize around that. All right, so if we stick with um, Freeman's, you didn't go about saying you had to have mirror the same product selection in store and online. That was You didn't feel that that was the necessary area, more about getting back into making e-commerce have a more of a, a, a stronger feel and, and uh, reheating old relationships. Were you in retargeting and social? What were you doing for that? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing uh, that you mentioned about the SKUs, I think that you have to look with any client in particular about what's the realm of the possible. So from the SKU perspective, in a perfect world, we want to carry, we want to be a competitor for Amazon. And in reality, that's not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, so with respect to the inbound market, uh, we divide that up into a number of different potential funnels. You know, so one of them is obviously organic SEO and making sure the right things are happening on the site with um, the proper 
more uh, tags, uh, and we're talking like you know headings, subheadings, and the mm-hmm. like. Uh, we're also talking about having the URL structured and you know properly all all the things that you would think about. Yeah, exactly. But then when it, when it comes to inbound marketing, uh, you know, building relationships with actual humans, with bloggers and influencers who are capable of sending us a decent amount of traffic. When it comes to social, uh, a lot of it is not just posting, but finding things that we can post to, uh, you know, to create more referral traffic. I mean, one, one thing that we did that was uh, actually interesting is previously there was a Tumblr that was somewhat branded, but not quite, uh, that we were sending a lot of Facebook traffic, Twitter traffic to the Tumblr. And then every now and then the Tumblr would link to the site. So mm-hmm. what we did is we took down the Tumblr. We've got a uh, you know blog for uh, for AI Friedman now, uh, and a lot of the inbound traffic goes to the blog, which is branded in the manner that the websites are branded, and it's a, it's a conduit uh, to sales now. Mm-hmm. So we actually uh, started creating relationships more with customers, asking them to submit testimonials and say, "We're going to feature your quote, and we're going to feature that product on social, and then we're going to amplify that uh, with a little bit of a social spend." Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so as a result, now we we're linking directly to products where we have actual customer testimonials around it. Uh, we, we're trying to find, obviously, products that are in the hot demand, but it's become a virtual feedback loop. So as a result, we're able to see what we should be carrying more of. So it's it's, it's a win on, on multiple dimensions. All right. So can, if you can tell us, what is the percentage of business that Freeman does with uh, e-commerce? Is that possible? You know, I, I can tell you that it's uh, the fastest growing division. I'd actually have to look at the, the overall number. But uh, but within the consumer division, it's uh, the fastest growing, and they actually were late to e-commerce. So that's one thing that's interesting about them is that a lot of people were were, were playing in this uh, before them. So in, in some cases, we are playing a bit of catch up, but uh, they may not. Or leapfrog. Yeah, exactly. But, but nice way of putting it. Right. So what my my thought why I asked about the percentage is how does the team structured within your organization and into whom it reports and so on. Within Firebrand or no? Within uh, Freeman, right? So within within, within uh, Freeman, in that case, uh, it, it's it's interesting because uh, you know to the point we we're just talking about, it's not as big yet, so it's kind of hard necessarily to put all the resources behind it that it needs until it shows <laughs> that it needs them, right? So, uh, so so the, in the case of the who we work with, you know, they do do have a head of web business basically who is doing a lot with the help of vendors, you know, with consulting groups like ours, uh, not that much in the way of headcount, you know, beyond that. There's a retail, uh, you know, head who is also interacting with him and supporting us on an ongoing basis. Since we are working on social, and obviously that has that strong retail element, since that is a large part of their business, uh, that that's really the, the um, main core function. But, but but to be totally honest, I mean, they, they do uh, function and struggle with the same issue that a lot of retailers have, which is that... They know the business opportunities there, but they have to do with a, a finite amount of resources, and then do a lot with, uh, you know, with consulting agreements. Right. So, 
with uh, Freeman, how's the how are they doing in their stores with e-commerce? Is how have they managed that crossover? In other words, are, are there terminals with um, with e-commerce in the stores, and how are they getting across that sometimes uh, tricky bridge? You know, it's it, it's it's actually tricky, but I think uh, one of the things that they're doing uh, first to tie into that is to have better customer data in general. So while they don't have a true e-commerce tie-in uh, with the stores, um, they are working on. Uh, and again, this is the type of thing that uh, you see in a company like a CVS or a retailer like Target is the fact that they can have very customized coupons because they understand so much about their customer. Uh, so to, to that point, you know, they have uh, a, Friedman has a major CRM initiative to actually, uh, you know, get more data points uh, for customer from customers. And this is something that uh, that we've worked with them on is to say, listen, ultimately, it's not really about privacy, it's about convenience. And if you can capture more data from customers so that you can send them a more targeted email so that and, and you only send them the things that they're going to be interested in, then uh, you're going to be you're going to have a very virtuous cycle, right? Because you're going to have customers who are going to come back because they are getting uh, you know promotional material that that ties into what they want. Well what my observation is all the same is well so we're getting the opt-ins from the customers but these data points come from multiple sources. And so it's getting everybody aligned and making sure we're getting all the right data to be filled in in a harmonious fashion so that the team that's running the CRM has clean data. How has that been going? You know, so one one thing about that I wanted to say first. So, so yes, ab- absolutely, it's a, it's it's a major challenge because you you are pulling in from multiple uh, data points, and actually, I've seen people go to the the far end of the spectrum and say, you know, data is so important for for us. What we're going to do is pull it in from six different data uh, data sources, and as a result, we're going to have so much data, and we're not going to even know what to do with it. And th- th- I actually uh, had a, a friend spoke at. Uh, uh, conference I saw, saw them last week talk about small data and I thought that that was really interesting as observations that you can get from small discrete pieces of data mm-hmm. and maybe it's not as much that uh, to me as it is thinking of a few key uh, data points to really hone in on and say, you know what, we don't need 40 reports to make decisions. We need to think ultimately at the end of the day, what are the things we want to know about our customers? And you can probably get that from a few columns worth of data. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying we're going to have 40 columns, 40 reports or whatever, and it's just going to be too much for us to really parse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you you encounter that too, where people capture so much True. and then afterwards they think, well, what are we going to do with yeah. this? I mean, I have a, <laughs> you probably have the same kind of recollection recollection of boxes of postcards that uh, brands got in because they did some you know um, competition and they get all the data but then they do what with it so it's about knowing why you're collecting the data what you want to do with it my friend um, Jeremy Waite in, in England always says what's the big money ball number so what is the, the the number that's going to drive your business and then focus in on that you make a choice you don't have 40 pages of data, as you're saying, Jeremy, but, you know, the big one. We all rallied around that, and that's what people are going to get remunerated on because we know that's the number that's going to make us work and hopefully drive the business. Um, so I was thinking, um, all right, in the e-commerce, um, today it's it's obviously the growing section of the, 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 of the you know, economy in the States as it is in many places. What for you are the, are the big ticket items that are really helping to drive e-commerce? If you're talking specifically not the pure players, but companies that are are evolving into also e-commerce, what are the things that you come across that are really helping? 
so yeah, I mean, I think that the, the key drivers of e- e-commerce uh, growth, if, I, if I'm understanding right, is um, I, I think that actually some of the less sexy things, I mean, because it's not just about just merchandising and getting the product in the right category when you can start searching and after two characters, all of a sudden your product shows up, mm-hmm. right? So things like that are becoming less important. But there are a lot of less sexy elements that people don't focus on as much, such as getting operations right, you know, such as being able to uh, know immediately whether or not you're going to get a product and exactly what day you're going to receive the product. And actually, one thing that, uh, that uh, particularly in beauty, has been very big over the last few years, but we see continuing to grow, is replenishment services. So, I mean, the ability... Like the beauty box. Yeah. Exa- well, well, you know, even beyond that, if I know that there's a, like, let's just say, like a certain product from Lancome, from L'Oreal, that I really want, um, and I know that I'm using it up on average every nine weeks, to be able to receive it every nine weeks is a pretty great service. Um, that's the, and, and, and by the way, this all goes back to um, what are the advantages over one uh, mode of shopping over another? That's what you have to be thinking about. And if you want your, mo- your, your mode of retail, right. such as e-commerce, mm-hmm. uh, to win out over traditional retail, you have to think about what the advantages are. Replenishment is not something that's built into a traditional brick-and-mortar re- retailer, but e-commerce it can be. So again, you have to th- be consistently thinking about what are the things that are going to help you win out over other channels mm-hmm. if you are competing with them. All right, so operations, getting those right, getting the customer service part presumably you know good so they know they can track the data, the logistics behind it. What about social or, or at least uh, other elements that are helping to drive um, e-commerce in your experience? Yeah, so um, so social is definitely you know it, it's strong in some respects, especially if you have a business that's that's like a, a new e-commerce business where it kind of grew up around social. So Fab.com, Giant Nerd is another one that does a really good job at benefiting from this. Um, it, it, in some ways, it becomes less of a driver purely for e-commerce. Uh, if, from my experience, if you're talking about a brand where, and we, we were kind of talking about this before we started rolling, is that social sometimes has a lot of benefit to other. Uh, channels as well, right? So, um, so, so sometimes it's not as much social uh, inbound marketing, and actually getting, uh, making sure that you've got a number of different uh, levers that are being pulled. That's the that's the key thing to really succeeding in e-commerce because it's just like anything else with advertising. You want to see something reinforced a few times before somebody's actually going to pull a trigger and make a purchase. So, it's the same thing that if you can do a little bit of retargeting, a little bit of paid search, mm-hmm. a little bit of social, uh, and some influencer relations so you get some great key strategic blog posts around your product, then you're going to be in a good place because somebody's going to just keep on seeing you everywhere. Right. And there's that, you've, you, I'm sure like we've been both been victims of it where we've seen something enough times where, where, where we say, what the heck, we're going to give it a try. So same That's principle. For sure. Um, <clears throat> when when um, we, we talk about uh, social, there's the there's this notion that it's a, a panacea for so many, and yet we know we don't own it. So Facebook's changing the rules all the time. Do you feel companies needing to own the data more? Because you're a data guy. How does that interface, uh, or how do you see companies trying to want to own their data more, or are they, uh, I, if I if I to reformulate? How are so? How are companies trying to manage capturing the data that seems to be residing in social media? 
Yeah, you know, I think you see more and more uh, people, and this is not unexpected, I'm sure, to you know people like you or I, in that social media has to be monetized so that you have a lot of uh, dashboards, a lot of social media management platforms that are finding ways to uh, capture all this data. Uh, and, and, and then basically the fact that you can have a single source and then you can have branded reports off of a platform like um, Salesforce Radiant 6 mm-hmm. or Simply Measured or Sprout Social. There are, I mean, you know, hundreds of these platforms literally mm-hmm. at this point. Um, companies want to use a single source. They want to be able to have one place where all their social mm-hmm. data resides, where they can pull out reports. And I think part of what's, what's interesting is that even though you have a lot of companies moving towards that, um, in particular because there are different APIs for mm-hmm. each one of these, uh, you know, platforms, you can't necessarily get everything in one source right. yet, right? So Google Plus is very challenging. Pinterest is challenging to some. Instagram is challenging. So Facebook and Twitter are the two kind of easy ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting everything in a single source has still been a challenge for co- companies. And literally nobody can yet solve that until all these APIs are open. Totally. Looking at e-commerce globally, you're, you're based in a, in a country and you're trying to drive e-commerce into other countries. What are the types of recommendations or thoughts you have about trying to structure a global e-commerce full experience you've got through that? Yeah, you know, I think one of the key things is, especially if you're going to do an e-commerce rollout and you've got a global team that's responsible for, uh, you know, rolling things out, uh, you have to have a, the right structure in place. You have to have boots on the ground, so to speak, in different markets. So um, not, not expecting, especially, you know, if your global market uh, is important, but then if you're expecting, let's say, 30% of your business from another key market, you cannot manage all of it from afar. You need to have the right structure um, so that you, uh, when, when it comes to understanding new rules and regulations, when it comes uh, to understanding cultural norms, uh, it's very important to leave a certain element of ownership to the local market. So that's the biggest thing I would say is that you pass on the overall structure. You say, this is what we are. This is what we're not. These are the key areas that particularly with respect to e-commerce, we need to have a role of leadership. Um, But then at the same time, what are the things that can be a little bit different and be tweaked from market to market? And by the way, that's actually something when I was working on Kiehl's that uh, we, we, I think, did very well, not just for e-commerce, but for retail, is we had these retail guidelines, but we had all these areas that different markets could innovate. And Korea, in particular, you know, South Korea did a fantastic job, and I believe the it um, Kiehl's became the number two beauty brand or number two within the luxury sector within Korea simply because they had the ability to innovate uh, within a certain structure. Same principle for e-com. Right. So, what are the kinds of things that you allow in in local? You know, so you got the adapting to the rules and regulations. You've got um, making events that are more appropriate maybe in your social aspect that are you know news jacking but local news jacking what are any any other things that you, uh, you would prescribe as a, a set of things which we should be allowed for the local team to do versus the global running yeah no so a perfect example are local skews doing things uh, promotions tied around local holidays that's also key um, there are certain markets and there have been some studies on this you know some some markets or countries prefer thumbnails of a different size uh, on pages actually and then you're going to convert people a little bit differently uh, if you have different, uh, you know, size of images. So is it a little bit of a headache? Yes. But mm-hmm. it, if your numbers are big enough and it can pay for itself, it pays to do that. 
Um, also, when it, with respect to language, I mean, you know, you, you've seen German and you've seen how long it can be, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have um, design templates and layouts that can be modified so that they can work for another model. Yeah, and the characters as well. Yeah, exactly. So so it kind of all stems from there. It, it, it is very important to have that flexible structure mm-hmm. because all these things, or I shouldn't say all of these, but there's a menu of items and some of these things you've, you've got to be open to. Uh, uh, the flexible layouts, flexible changes, you know, t- to succeed in these different markets. Responsive um, design. What's your take on responsive design? You know, responsive design can be a good thing more often than not it is. But, I mean, I, th- I think when you go to responsive, you can't introduce another problem, which is, oh, it's so great at being responsive, and now it doesn't look at all like what it was uh, initially. Or, oh, it looks great, but now you can't convert people because of some uh, trade-off that you've made. I mean, I've seen sites where the nice thing about them is that they give away um, free samples, but based off of their responsive layout, uh, you have to... Uh, roll your thumb. You have, you've got to swipe 17 times. Literally, I counted 17 times before you got to the free samples offer. So as a result, I, as a responsive mobile shopper, was not aware of that, or I wouldn't have been aware mm-hmm. of that. So you have to think about just because you want it to look beautiful and you want it to be appealing to the customer, does it still convert? And and I've seen companies that they kind of, you know, they can remain nameless, but they've, they've worked with a new responsive design for a few months, and then they noticed, oh, you know what, our e-com conversion rate, you know, has dropped off uh, 40%, and nobody noticed, and you have to pay attention to these things. Jeremy, a couple of um, last questions. Uh, first one is, uh, what are the best sites for you, best practice sites that you think are, are um, best in class in e-commerce? So best in class in e-commerce is, is, is tricky because obviously you can go towards a, a very obvious answer like an Amazon, uh, which it, it, it pays to carry everything and to make everybody else use your, your platform, obviously. Most people listening to this don't have that option of becoming Amazon, <laughs> uh, right? So so uh, I would say, and I think like uh, fab.com, so a giant nerd, which I mentioned, they both have social shopping embedded into their DNA. Uh, and in some respects, those are really strong ones to follow. Uh, I'd say uh, out of the... um uh, you know, like the beauty segment, I think I still think that Keels.com, uh, which, you know, disclaimer, I used to manage, but but w- is actually a very good example. You know, it's a, it's a clear layout. You can find your product easily. There's an incentive to check out. There are, if you're close to hitting the free shipping minimum, it'll tell you, so on and so forth. Bare Essentials uh, and the like, you know, does a really great job with um, uh, replenishment as well. So bareessentials.com is definitely one I'd give an A, a plus to as well. Anyone in luxury? Well, you know, maybe those are affordable luxuries. So I kind of, you know, count those among that category. Mm-hmm. But luxury is a whole. We can do a whole another podcast on on who converts there. That's a, because it, because it's a whole another challenge. You're trying to establish your brand and not just convert. And those two things don't necessarily mesh, as you know. So may that be the subject of our next podcast, Jeremy. So for anyone wants to track you down, follow you. What's the best way? Yeah. So I'm at Jeremarketer on Twitter. Probably the best place to find me because when I'm not sleeping or eating, that's where I am. And uh, yeah, and, uh, I, I, I respond to just about anybody. I'd love to have a lively chat, so get in touch. Beautiful. Thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. Look forward to staying in touch and we'll catch up on the next podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Internet Show. 
You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please rate it in iTunes, and don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or to tweet it out. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.